Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Dr. Cubitt, it is good to have you here today. I am excited to be back. Today, we're going to be talking about, am I feeding my horse the wrong type of hay? And basically what we're going to get into is there's a ton of hays that we could be feeding our livestock, but there are some hays that are more commonly fed to our horses that those are the ones that we're going to chat about today and some pros of those certain types, some cons of those certain types. And if you have, you know, particular horses, what type of hay should I be feeding? What kind of the questions do I need to be asking before we can even answer the question of what type of hay should my horse be eating? So that's what we're going to get into today. A lot to cover. Yes. So let's get started. The first question that I want to start with is how much hay does a horse need to eat? eat in order to maintain its body weight and keep the digestive system working properly? So I'll throw out maintain body weight and we'll just go with keep the digestive system working properly because every horse's metabolic rate is a little different, just like people. So to keep the digestive system functioning properly, the minimum for an average horse is about one and a half percent of body weight. So if you've got a thousand pound horse, that would be 15 pounds of forage that we would want to feed in a day. Now, I typically like people to eat more close, not people, horses to to eat closer to two to two and a half. So 20 to 25 pounds of forage per day. But if the horse is really fat and we want to decrease body weight, we can for a short period go as low as 1.2% of body weight. So the maintaining the body weight part, it really just depends on the horse. And so I won't give you an, I won't give blanket statements there. Um, other than to say, if you work within the one and a half to two and a half percent of body weight, if your horse is what we call a hard keeper, go more towards the two and a half and choose hays that are going to be higher in calories. If your horse is an easy keeper, lean more towards the one and a half and choose hays that are lower in calories. Perfect. And I think that's great advice. And of course, you know, we got to take this information with a grain of salt because you don't know everybody's horse that is listening to this podcast. You don't know all the details about them, their energy needs and all of that type of information, what age they are, anything. And so this is definitely ballpark information given, you know, like you talked about hard keeper, easy keeper. So I think that was really helpful to kind of include what those needs are for those different type of horses. So yeah, then let's go ahead and break out the different types of hay. So we have two main plant types that we often talk about when it comes to horse hays, grass and legume. What are the differences between those two? So a legume is a type of plant that will actually on its roots It has these little nodes on the roots that are what we call nitrogen fixing. So it will put nitrogen down into the soil. Well, nitrogen, protein, same thing. So legumes are also higher in protein. You'll see a lot of farmers when they're rotating crops, maybe one year they'll grow corn and then the next year they'll grow soybeans. And the reason why they do that 
is partly different markets, but it's a natural fertilizer for the soil. As far as what you're going to get from a legume, you're going to look at things like clover, alfalfa, um, certain types of peanut haze. These are all legume haze, and they're going to typically be higher in calories, higher in protein, um, higher in calcium than your grass haze. So for certain classes of horse, they are fantastic, and for others, they're not. And then when we look at a grass hay, um, grasses, there are two different classes, which I'm kind of jumping to the next question, but warm season and cool season grasses, um, and it really is more of a a climate thing. The warm season grasses certainly proliferate more in the hotter months and the cool season grasses will grow more actively in the cooler months and will become dormant in those hotter months. But the cool season grasses also are very good at storing energy as sugars, um, whereas your warm season grasses and your legumes will store their energy more predominantly as starch. The other thing with a legume and a warm season grass is we call them self-limiting, i.e. There's a, there's a space in their plant structure where they put energy. And once that space is full, they can't accumulate any more energy until they use it. Whereas cool season grasses, they don't have a little space to store energy. They just store it in every cell in the plant's body. And so they can accumulate a whole lot more sugar and carbohydrate than a legume or warm season grass, if that makes any difference, makes any sense. Right. And I think on a previous episode, didn't you, you used a really great analogy about like filling up a gas tank. Yes. Yeah. So like a legume being self-limiting, it's like filling up the gas tank of your truck and um, you don't fill it up again until it's complete, it's empty or you've used that, that gas. Yeah. Right. I love that analogy when you shared it. See, I even remembered it. So, Good. <laughs> uh, so let's move into then what are, and obviously there are a ton of, especially when you get into like pasture grasses and, and all of those kinds of things, but what are some of the most common types of horse hay? Um, you know, I think that most people, if I said the word Timothy or orchard grass or Bermuda grass, you would be very familiar with those three grass species. Um, you would be familiar with me saying the word clover or alfalfa when I was talking about legume plant species. But depending on the areas of the country that you live in, there are uh, a lot of local kind of meadow grasses, and it's a variety of different grasses. I can't really tell you all of the species, but they are local to your area and maybe a makeup of uh, cool and warm season grasses. So if you're buying a local meadow hay, it could be a variety of different grasses that I can't exactly tell you the names of. But when we think about cool season grasses, we primarily think of Timothy and orchard grass when feeding horses. And when we think of warm season grasses, we uh, typically think of Bermuda grass. Um, some people may have heard of Bahia grass. Yeah, that's another warm season grass. Um, and then a newer one that has become a bigger thing in the last couple of years, Teff. Yes. So Teff is a warm season grass um, native to Africa, but Again, it has the same characteristics. So there are other characteristics of our warm season grasses when it comes to pasture and nutritional value to our horses. Typically, your cool season grasses are going to have higher nutrient density 
and are going to be higher in sugars. So more energy is stored because I said, you know, they're going to store energy in every crevice that they have versus your warm season grasses are going to have slightly more fiber content, slightly less digestible and definitely lower sugar and starch content. So that's why Teff has become quite popular, especially with our horses that are sugar sensitive, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, obesity, laminitis, you know, the list is endless. Teff has uh, become quite popular because for producers, it's uh, a good solid plant to grow, um, drought tolerant, that kind of thing. And it has a slightly better nutrient value than some of the other warm season grasses, like uh, certain varieties of Bermuda grass. And I just want to point out, I know, you know, you asked a simple question and I'm giving you a huge complicated answer. Um, I've fallen into this trap. We don't want to fall into the trap of Bermuda grass being lumped as one thing. Within Bermuda grass, there's actually a lot of different species or varieties of Bermuda grass. Um, coastal Bermuda grass is probably the one that stereotypically gets used synonymously with the word Bermuda grass. Coastal Bermuda grass is a grass that is grown more in more coastal areas. Um, it's very fine and it gets a bad rap for being implicated in impaction colic and not being very digestible at all. But then I have seen other varieties of Bermuda grass grown in places like Texas that uh, rival the nutrient value of some cool season grasses. So that's just a side note. Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I remember when we did a webinar previously about this and looking at the different species, and I know it wasn't even all the species, but you listed a number of, gosh, it must have been at least 20 different subspecies, basically, of the Bermuda grass. And so, yeah, keep that in mind when you're looking at the different types of hay to be feeding your horses for sure. And so when you are working with horse owners, there's often there's a few probably about maybe four or so questions that you ask horse owners to help determine what type of hay that they should be feeding talking about like age and, and things like that. Can you go over some of those things that you like to ask horse owners when you're trying to help them determine the type of forage they should be feeding? Yeah. Um, and really the first question that I always ask is what is the age of your horse? And so from that, we can dictate whether it's a young growing foal, whether it's kind of a, what we would consider a mature horse, which is anything from three through to 12, 13, or is it a senior horse? And if the answer is senior horse, then I ask, what is the horse's teeth like? Um, do they have good dentition? Because that is going to dictate whether we can use a long stem forage, a typical hay, or whether we need to use a, what I call a, a hay alternative, which is we take that hay and we've chopped it down and we've formed a hay pellet or a cube, um, or we're using other forage sources. So that's kind of age dictates a lot of things. And then I want to know the horse's body weight. Um, and less about body weight, but more about body condition. Are they overweight, underweight, or just right? And then what exercise are they doing or what physiological state are they in? So are they doing heavy dressage exercise? Are they doing racing exercise? Are they broodmares? Are they pleasure horses? Is it a stallion? You know, we can determine based on that what their actual nutrient density needs are. 
And then also, what have you been feeding up to this point? Because that can give me a bit of an idea of the metabolic status of the horse. If they say, you know, my horse is a pretty easy keeper and I fed him alfalfa in the past and he got really fat, then I'm going to say, okay, this horse is an easy keeper and maybe we need to steer clear of some of those more high calorie hays in place of a less calorie dense hay. Because ultimately... I still need to feed. The very first question you asked is the most important question. It doesn't matter if your horse is fat or thin, whether they do, you know, race in the Kentucky Derby or they are a pleasure horse or a maintenance horse. They still have just a basic amount of hay that is required to keep their gastrointestinal tract functioning correctly. And their gastrointestinal tract does not care what the horse actually does. It just cares that they get enough fiber in their diet to keep it functioning. So definitely. And then also, it seems like, I don't know if this is as common as it used to be or not, but you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but about metabolic diseases too, which of course, horse owners then have to be coordinating and working very closely with their veterinarian, but that could also determine the type of hay that is fed as well. Is that correct? Yes. And so whether the horse has a diagnosed disorder, and I'll even throw in, so I talked about metabolic disorders, i.e. we would be leaning towards a low sugar, um, low non-structural carbohydrate type hay, but then I'll also throw in other disorders like HYPP, that is a problem in quarter horses where they can't have a lot of potassium in their diet. So a forage like alfalfa is very high in alfalfa, so we would steer clear of that with those horses. So yes, we want to find out, is there any physiological disorder, metabolic disorder that we should be considering when choosing the correct forage for the horse. Right. And you said alfalfa was high in potassium. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay, perfect. And then this is something interesting that I have heard from horse owners. They're just not really sure about it, but should we feed one type of hay to our horses or multiple types of hay and why or why not? You know, I think that we've fallen into the trap of just feeding one type of hay. Um, Oh, I'm going to feed my horse only eats orchard or he only eats Timothy or he only eats alfalfa because it's it's hard to buy a hay unless you're buying a local meadow hay. As producers, when we make hay, um, you want to be able to harvest that hay at the correct time for that particular plant. So if we're growing orchard grass, we have a field full of orchard grass and we're harvesting it, we're fertilizing it, we're doing everything specific to orchard grass. So we grow that and we bale that and now we have a bale of perfect orchard grass hay. So we as horse owners have kind of followed that trend and bought specific hay varieties, but it may not have been the right thing to do. We've done it out of convenience, but if you look at a horse in the wild who is our gold standard for the most healthy, he eats a wide variety of different fiber types, forages. Even if you just look at your horse in the field, he's not just eating one type of grass. Um, He's eating a few of what you might consider weeds. He's eating some taller plants, some shorter plants, so a variety. And that is really important because it keeps the microbiome, which is the community of bacteria and fungi and yeast that live in the hindgut of the horse, which is the largest part of the horse's digestive system and the most important. So the microbiome lives there and it is what digests all this fiber. And if you don't keep that healthy, then 
nothing else in your horse will be healthy. And that microbiome is a diverse community and it thrives on a diversity in forage choices. So the short answer to your question is we should be feeding multiple types of hay, but don't fall into the trap of thinking it all has to come in one bale. Buy yourself some fantastic orchard grass hay. Buy yourself some really good alfalfa. Buy yourself some Timothy hay. Even buy some local meadow hay and give them a little bit of all of it. That is totally fine. Right. And it's amazing just some of the educational things that you've helped me out with this year. Just some of the research that's going on right now showing different studies of horses eating limited you know, whether it be pasture, hay or grain, and then just how well, how happy those gut microbiomes are of the ones that have so much more of a variety in their diet. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think that the microbiome in people and in horses is a hot topic right now, and we're learning more and more about it. And it is the way forward for health of horses and people. Absolutely. It's very intriguing to me. I'm very much looking forward to how much more information comes out about this and learning about it. So let's move into some of those more common types of haze that we talked about before. And I know that you did briefly mention some things about the legumes, the cool season grasses, and then the warm season grasses. But let's go over some pros and cons of a few of these different types. And I will also be making sure that we offer and provide some kind of like little quick sheets that kind of go over the different nutrient values of alfalfa, orchard grass, all those different things. We're going to include that in this podcast episode as kind of like an add-on. So let's go ahead and start with the pros and cons of alfalfa. Yes, perfect. Okay. And I, and this is a good one to start with because it probably gets the there's the most myths surround alfalfa. So what are the pros of alfalfa? It's high in protein, good quality protein. And when I talk about good quality protein, I'm talking about those essential amino acids like lysine. Um, it's higher in calories than your grass haze. It's higher in calcium than those grass haze. It's lower in sugars and starches, because remember I said it was self-limiting, so it can only store a certain amount of those non-structural carbohydrates. Some of the cons, though, of alfalfa, just when it comes to nutrient content, is the fact that it is high in protein. Um, sometimes we don't need a lot of extra protein for a particular horse. Um, the fact that it does have high calories may not be appropriate for some horses. And it also is high in potassium, which for those horses with HYPP, it's not appropriate for those particular horses. So it's a great hay in the right situation. When it comes to the actual growing and handling of alfalfa, uh, it can be a little tricky if you're growing it in areas where you're not able to um, to dry it or it gets too dry. And then one of the problems with a lot of alfalfa grown out here on the East Coast is what we call leaf shatter, where the person really just buys a bale of alfalfa stems. Um, one of the great things about alfalfa grown by Stan Lee is that you, you, I always say when I'm describing the growing conditions, it's like a biodome that is perfect for growing forage um, out there in Idaho. So the quality of the alfalfa coming out of the Stanleaf uh, facilities is it's it's optimal. It's perfect for horses. It's got plenty of leaf. It's not overly stemmy. It's very digestible, but it's for a certain group of horses. That's excellent. And we talked about this a little bit already, but 
tough grass being kind of a newbie grass, you know, in popularity anyway, but it's really finding a niche in the horse world. So what are some pros and cons of tough grass? You know, the pros of tough grass, are the, the big pro that we sell on is the fact that it is low in sugars and starches. Um, it's a warm season grass, so it's it's low in, in those um, non-structural carbohydrates, which is ideal for the majority of our horses. Um, really, the biggest con that I find with tough grass is not a lot of people know about it. So it's it's more of a perception that, ooh, what is this tough grass? And in some cases, if it's not grown well, I find that sometimes horses getting used to it, it can be a little unpalatable. But again, if it's grown well, I've, I've really had no problems with it. But just, uh, just that it's new. Right. And then let's get into these next two grasses. They're fairly similar in a lot of ways, but they still, uh, you can still differentiate them a bit. But some pros and cons of orchard grass. You know, I will lump them together and say orchard and timothy. The main difference between orchard and timothy is that orchard grass has slightly more nutritional content than timothy grass when grown under identical circumstances. Now, I'm not going to say that all orchard grass is better than all timothy or all timothy is worse than all orchard grass because, again, the big thing you have to remember when growing any forage for hay is the growing conditions. The growing conditions, how it's handled, how it's treated, how it's harvested, play such a huge role in the end product. Um, so I would say if we're talking apples to apples and we're in a Stanley facility and we have, you know, all the experts growing one field of orchard grass and one field of Timothy grass and they're being treated scientifically the same, then orchard grass is going to be slightly more nutritionally beneficial, uh, slightly higher in protein and calories than Timothy. Um, that being said, the cons of either of these are that they can be when grown under certain circumstances, and some of this is just environmental, they can be high in sugars and starches, so higher in those non-structural carbohydrates compared to a TEF or alfalfa. But I do want to emphasize it really comes down to the producer and the harvester. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that because just as you were getting ready to speak on that, I was thinking in my head, you know, it really does come down to the area or the environment that it's grown in and then the producer themselves, the grower that's watering when they need to water or, you know, in some areas they don't have the ability to irrigate whether they're fertilizing when they need to. And the key thing also when it comes to plant maturity is when it's cut. Because there can be a huge difference in the quality if it's cut too early or if it's cut too late, trying to miss thunderstorms or any of that kind of stuff. And so that's why it's also really important, especially for horse owners that maybe have a horse that is struggling with sugars and starches or something like that. I mean, really getting the, the hay tested for them is especially when it's local hay and you have no idea where it's even starting at. One nice thing that we do, we do have a guaranteed analysis on our, our products, which I think is very helpful, but I feel like that's something that can be really helpful for horse owners is if they need to, they really should test their hay. Yeah, absolutely. And then we talked about this also, but Bermuda has a ton of species of different grasses, but let's talk about just because it is something that horse owners know it well. So keep in mind, coastal Bermuda grass. So don't blanket statement this with all Bermuda, but pros and cons of coastal Bermuda grass. 
Okay. So while we've been, I've been doing a little Googling just to get a bit more of the kind of history of coastal because it really is one of the Bermuda grass species that people are most familiar with. And it was released for public to grow and was commercialized in 1943. So it's been around a long time and it was designed to be harvested as a hay versus other species have been grown for grazing, but this was grown. uh, It's moderately cold tolerant. If you look at the actual plant, it has pretty fine leaves and it is low in sugars and starches, which is definitely a benefit for uh, coastal Bermuda grass. But when you think about how the digestive system works, um, there are stretch receptors all the way along the digestive system that need to be pushed or engaged in order to keep the food passing down the digestive system. And I think that this is my educated guess, really. I haven't got a lot of research to back this up, but because coastal Bermuda grass in particular is so fine that it doesn't engage those stretch receptors as well as other forage varieties. And so that's one thing that goes against it because it's not very, it it can be when harvested late, it can be very, uh, have a lot of non-digestible fiber in it. So we have this non-digestible fiber, plus it's not engaging those stretch receptors. So it has a tendency to cause impaction colic. What I say is because coastal Bermuda grass for a lot of folks in, especially in the the Southeastern United States, it's very available and it's cost-effective. I say, use that as your base because you can afford to feed plenty of it. But let's add in some uh, other hay. Maybe we're going to buy in some better quality orchard or some better quality Timothy to mix into that coastal Bermuda grass hay to, you know, engage those stretch receptors, boost the fiber quality. But of course, we would love for people to have all the money in the world and be able to buy the most expensive, best quality hay. But then it comes down to what is practical for people. And ultimately, my first goal is to get them to feed enough forage. And then we work on making sure it's good quality and that kind of thing. Right. And sometimes when it comes to availability and people's local hay supply, you know, it's convenient. And so I think that's a great suggestion is just trying to boost that quality by putting in a little bit extra higher quality hay to to kind of supplement that diet, which is just giving them more of what the digestive system really works well on. So and I I'm curious to know, what is the most common mistake do you find that caretakers make when they're choosing forage or hay for their horses? I think that across the board, probably the common mistake is not feeding enough, not prioritizing the hay portion of their budget um, to be the most important. And what do you feel, do you feel like Uh, Horse owners, maybe sometimes they just see everything that's out there and available that no matter, you know, what area that they're in, they have to have this, this and this type of supplement. Sometimes I see horse owners talking about just I think the need that the horses have to eat grain. And so that's why they feed their horse grain, which, of course, some horses do need that added energy. But do you see that? Um, you know, I think that we sometimes just get stuck in the weeds and I am an equine nutritionist. And so I work with all spectrums of the equine diet from supplements to concentrate feeds to the forage portion of the diet. But really 
it doesn't matter who I'm working with, the foundation, if you look at the food pyramid for a horse, the bottom is fo is forage. That's the most important part of the diet. And the only reason we add anything else is to supplement what you might not be getting out of that forage. We know that even the best quality hay is going to be, or forage is going to be deficient in selenium, copper, and zinc across the board. So we need to add those. We know that certain groups of horses need extra calories or extra protein to support their current, you know, life's activity, be it racing or having babies. So we know that there are things that we need to add to the diet. We know that a forage is not necessarily going to be a joint supplement or a hoof supplement. So there are things that we're going to add in smaller quantities, but when I go in and I'm asked to do a nutritional evaluation for the horse, the very first thing I evaluate is the hay because it is the largest part of the horse's diet. And because per pound, maybe it's the least expensive, it just gets pushed to the side. I'll just buy whatever's available and that's, I'm, I'm going to feed three flakes a day or whatever I'm going to do. And then, you know, the grain concentrate is more expensive and the supplements are more expensive and they probably have fancier marketing. So I get drawn into those being so much more important, but they're not. Everything has its own place, but the most important part, the thing your horse cannot live without is water, air, and fiber. Um, so, you know, I think that is the probably the most common mistake is just not prioritizing the forage portion of the horse's diet as much as they should. You can decrease vet visits. You can improve hoof quality and coat health just by feeding enough hay and feeding better quality hay. So there's one other forage variety, and I know we're, we're probably running out of time, but I, you had it down in your list of questions, and I do want to touch on it for the folks at home that think we just do all this off the cuff and we don't have a list of questions. <laughs> Neither of us can be that organized. We, we have to prepare. Um, you have pros of fescue or tifton grass as well as the cons of fescue or tifton grass. And remember, we were talking earlier about Bermuda grass and how there are so many different varieties of Bermuda grass. And coastal is the one that seems to be synonymously used when we use the term Bermuda grass, but it's only one variety. Tifton is actually a variety of Bermuda grass that was specifically developed as a hay grass instead of a pasture grass. So Tifton um, better nutritional value than your coastal Bermuda grass, but it is warm season, so it's going to have the lower sugars and starches. So cons might be not as nutritionally dense as something like an orchard grass or an alfalfa, but it's pros being that it's a warm season grass are going to be that it's lower in sugars and starches and probably also going to have slightly lower calories um, than some of our orchard or timothy. But again, it all depends on the growing conditions. Fescue is its own podcast. I mean, we really could talk hours on fescue. Um, fescue really gets a bad rap because it has an ergot. It's this little fungus thing that can be very toxic for horses. Um, there are certain varieties, again, that have been developed that do not have, they call them endophyte friendly or endophyte free, and they've been genetically modified so that they don't contain that endophyte. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because it's a really long, crazy name, but just know that it is toxic to horses. In particular, 
it's um, what it does is it can have some kind of vasoconstriction. So a lot of people that breed mares will know that fescue can be bad for those brood mares, especially in the last part of their pregnancy. Um, will have prolonged gestation. Uh, which can sometimes lead to abortion or stillbirth or worst case, um, a dystocia because that gestation length has gone on and on and on and the foal gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it's very difficult for that mare to deliver that foal. Um, But the other thing is what we called agalactia or hypogalactia, which means they don't produce or they have very poor milk production. And we know that that colostrum is absolutely critical in the first few hours of life. And if there's just very limited amounts of that, then that does not set the the foal up well. Um, We've also, there's been a little bit of research looking at that vasoconstriction. So that means closing down the blood vessels. Um, Some of that work's actually been done in cattle with relation to heat stress. But when we talk about that in horses, we're concerned about horses with metabolic syndrome, and that might be um, at risk of laminitis, that laminitis itself already closes down those blood vessels going to the laminae in the hooves. So we wouldn't want to be eating something that's also exacerbating that. So um, if we've got geldings that are doing fine or mares that you're not breeding, then fescue is fine for them. Um, But if you ever want to have brood mares or we're worried about obesity and the implications of laminitis, then you might want to steer clear of the typical tall fescue and go more towards those endophyte free or endophyte friendly varieties. That's great. I actually didn't know that that was an issue with fescue. So I'm really glad that we actually didn't skip over that question. So thank you for throwing that information in there. No problem. And then as we wrap up these few questions, before we go into a few questions from our Stanley followers and listeners, what are some of your go-to tips for what horse owners need to look for when they're purchasing hay? Uh, When they're purchasing hay, I think it's really important, you know, that we buy enough hay. So we always run out because I don't think that we properly determine how much hay our horses need. So first thing I do is get out my pen and paper or my calculator on my computer, whatever. But we write down that we should be feeding about 2% of our horse's body weight in fiber. So if your horse is a thousand pounds, we're looking to feed him 20 pounds of hay per day. If you're buying hay in bulk, you're going to be buying it by the pound, the ton. But we want to make sure that, okay, we can work out. We have five horses. We're feeding the 20 pounds each a day. And we're trying to buy enough forager hay for three months at a time. And we can calculate how much we need. And then we know we're buying enough. From there, don't just look at what everybody else might be feeding their horse or what your trainer feeds their horse. It always comes back to what's appropriate for your horse. I will say if you have, say you have five different horses and you have three that sit in the middle and then you have one really skinny one and one really fat one, then you're going to find a hay that probably meets the needs of the lowest common denominator, like the fat horse. Because it doesn't matter whether he's fat or thin, he still needs to eat that one and a half to 2% of his body weight. 
So that's our base hay. And from there, we can improve the forage portion of the horse's diet by buying alfalfa pellets or, you know, we've got Timothy oat pellets. I mean, we've got all different varieties of forages um, that are more convenient, easier to purchase and easy to store that we can boost the nutrient density and um, caloric content of the hay. But people fall into the trap of, I'll just feed that horse less. And that is probably one of the biggest mistakes that people make is just feeding less because we're trying to get him to lose weight or something. We, we need to feed the same amount when it comes to hay. We can feed him less grain, but we need to feed the same amount of hay. We just need to find the most appropriate hay for him. I don't know whether that helps answer your question. No, I think that's excellent. As we go into just a few of these questions, what is the best hay someone wants to know for winter, quote unquote, energy? Maybe to keep, I'm guessing maybe to keep their horses warm is maybe where they're getting at with this. Yeah. And this is interesting. Okay. So we know that the horses will shiver to keep themselves warm and that will take calories. Um, We know that when it gets really, really cold, there's just not enough calories that they can eat in hay to compensate for the amount that they're shivering to keep them warm. But we also know that a byproduct of the bacteria that live in the hindgut, when they're breaking down fiber, the hay portion of the diet, they actually create heat. So in the wintertime, I am a proponent of feeding a little more of a mature or stemmier forage because the bacteria will have to work harder to break that down. And so they'll produce more heat and that can internally keep them warmer. So if that's kind of where they're leading, then I think I would choose a hay that was maybe a first cut or a little more mature. What would you recommend being the best type of hay for, there's a few questions in here along the lines of like metabolic horses, so insulin resistant, things like that. What kind of hay, and we'll just cover this all together, but what kind of hay would be better for those types of horses? This one is a little tougher. You think that's going to be an easy answer. Ultimately, low sugar and starch, right? Across the board. So your teff type haze, alfalfa maybe. The second question that really is going to dictate whether you're going towards a teff or an alfalfa is, is the horse fat or thin? If the horse is fat, which is pretty stereotypical of that metabolic syndrome, insulin-resistance, laminitis horse, then we're going to go towards a teff hay, low-calorie, low sugar and starch, they can eat their 2% of body weight and be fine. If the horse is thinner and has these metabolic issues, then we're going to lean towards alfalfa because it's going to give them the calories and the protein they need, but it's also low in sugars and starches. Okay. And then PSSM horses. Okay, so PSSM or polysaccharide storage myopathy. See, I said that real fast. Um, <laughs> it is a, a type of tying up. There's exertional rhabdomyolysis, recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis. They're all under the umbrella of tying up, but PSSM seems to be more implicated with the sugars and starches in the diet. So again, we're keeping the sugars and starches low. Most of these horses 
are going to be exercising because it seems to this disorder seems to uh, be worse when the horses are exercising. So you're probably going to lean more towards an alfalfa with the, these horses because they can't have a lot of sugars and starches. So what we do with the grain portion of the diet is we take away a lot of those sugars and starches and replace it with fat. So we're looking for every opportunity to try and put some more calories back in. So oftentimes these horses go with alfalfa, but again, same as the one before, if they're fat, then we'll go towards something more like a teff. Okay. What is the best type of hay for horses with gastric ulcers? Gastric ulcers, um, again, if we can swing alfalfa, that is the best type because it's high in calcium and that's going to help buffer those gastric ulcers. But let's say you've got a fat horse and alfalfa is really not practical because it's just going to, it might take away the gastric ulcers, but it's going to make the horse even fatter. And then we'll have a whole nother set of issues on our hands. At that point, continual forage, any forage just continually is ideal. Perfect. Just keep that digestive system working. Yeah, exactly. Keep them chewing, keep them producing saliva, buffering that stomach acid. Yep. Perfect. Does hay type have anything to do with diarrhea episodes? Uh, yeah. Hmm. This is a hard one. Um, I think making a rapid feeding change, including rapidly changing the hay, is going to upset the bacteria in the hindgut. Now, hay also has water holding capacity. So I'm going to say it's more to do with the bacteria or the microbiome that live in the hindgut. And it's interesting because some horses, when they have chronic diarrhea, will respond to a more pelleted forage, a shorter fiber length. Other horses respond more to a longer fiber length and less digestible kind of first cut stemmy hay. So again, that's another one that it seems like an easy answer, but across the board, so many different things are causing the diarrhea. So it's not an, and it's not a simple answer. Right. You can go a multitude of ways. Yeah. And it's, it's really all to do with the bacteria and how they respond to that hay type. And some horses they do and others they don't. Right. And I remember just with some commentary from horse owners talking about sometimes when they they'll be, you know, somebody has recommended they feed this and this to their horse and they'll just give it to them. And then they'll be like, well, I can't feed that to my horse. It caused diarrhea. And then it's like, we'll dive a little bit deeper into this. Maybe. But did you just straight up feed it to them and not exactly. do any kind of transition? Because I know we've talked about this before on a previous episode. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what is the best type of hay for horses that have allergies or maybe format matters more? Yeah. And it's more about managing the hay and how you're feeding it. So I'm going to say that you should wet, whether it's pellets or cubes or long stem hay or even chopped forage, you should wet it because that's going to keep the dust down. Then if you've had your horse out, had an allergy panel, then it, there might be certain grass varieties or pollens that we can't feed the horse. And that, again, is back to being very specific. And we're on a more generalized podcast now. So in general, if it's more of a aerosolized allergen, then wetting the forage will, will really help. So in the wintertime, definitely when barns are closed up and horses are stuck in stalls a lot because it's cold out, then we want to try and keep the dust down because dust can really irritate the, um, the nasal passages. Is there 
a specific hay type or certain types. I think I've heard some people talking about their horse being like allergic to Timothy or something like that. Is there a a hay type that some horses might more commonly be allergic to than others? I don't think so. No. Okay. I was just curious about that. Yeah. How do you migrate a horse from one type of hay to another? What are your recommendations for that? Just use the same general rule that we use with um, changing a feed, 10 to 14 day period, and just take out a little bit of what you were doing before, put in a little bit of what you want to do. So let's say we want to take the horse from, you know, a local meadow hay and we're going to feed a Timothy alfalfa blend. Then every day we're just going to, over that 10 to 14 day window, we're going to take out a few pounds of the meadow hay and we're going to put a few pounds of the Timothy alfalfa in and we'll just slowly migrate it just like you would do when you were changing grains. Okay. And then you mentioned this a little bit when trying to figure out how much hay you're trying to stock up for, but this person was asking about managing two very different horse hay needs in the same turnout 24-7. So the example that they gave was insulin resistant slash easy keeper and then a hard keeper endurance horse. Yeah, and this is tough. It's always a challenge. But again, we go with the lowest common denominator, which is the IR easy keeper. And we pick a hay that's going to work for him, that he can still eat one and a half to two percent of his body weight. And then we can add supplemental forage like alfalfa pellets or alfalfa cubes to the hard keeper endurance horse. Okay. I think we covered a lot of great information here today. Um, Sometimes it's hard determining what type of hay you should be feeding your horse, but we've gone over a lot of the pros and cons of different types like alfalfa, teff grass, Timothy orchard, getting into Bermuda grass. And, you know, the questions that you need to be asking or if you're working with your nutritionist need to be asking to actually determine what type of hay should they be eating. And so hopefully this gives our listeners a little bit more confidence in knowing, you know, what types of hay would work well for their horse. And then also knowing just how good it is to give your horse some variety of forage in their diet and not feeling like you have to just feed one specific type. Absolutely. Yes. So with that, I think we will end our podcast episode today. And thanks for joining us, Dr. Cubitt. Thanks for having me. As always, I hope that these are useful to the listeners and they're getting some practical tips that uh, they can implement every day. Absolutely. We'll catch you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people. And subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.